This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new episode of Mercado and Manning, Media Week's weekly TV podcast. I'm James Manning. Joining me this week, as he does always, Andrew Mercado. Andrew, we've been waiting for this show for quite a while. Oh, have we ever? Uh, This England. Yeah. We've been hanging out for this. We weren't allowed to talk about it until today. And um, they delayed it for a week because of the Queen dying. It was they correct. they pulled it off the BBC, so that meant down here in Australia we've had to wait a little bit longer as yeah. well. We it actually goes out in the UK the day before. We can watch it here. So Amazing. I haven't wasted any time. It's on Sky Atlantic in the UK. Yep. I think it's on BBC First here. Correct. So um, Kenneth Branagh is the big talking point, of course. A very, um, very good likeness to um, Boris Johnson, the recently, um, can you call it, deposed British Prime <laughs> Minister. He lo- he. Well, he looks like the makeup is incredible yeah. to make him look like it, but the sound, it sounds like you close your eyes and it's like you're watching a documentary. I mean, yeah. Kenneth Branagh has become Boris Johnson for this, hasn't he? Yeah, two hours a day in makeup before all the wow. other cast arrived apparently. Again, there's a bit of prosthetics involved. Yeah. And and the, the facial, they've got the hair just right, of course. And... Um, Yes, just just amazing. The the lightness is stunning, and the body too. The way he sort of hunches his shoulders, that that walk, that yep. that walk that um, Boris is famous for, and you and they apparently what they I read they constructed a twenty two room replica of um, Downing Street. Downing Street, ten Downing Street. There's a couple of shots of him just walking through the way he sort of mumbles, hello, hello, good morning, good morning, yeah, things like that. It's just um, just a superb recreation. So this England is the story of his uh, him being Prime Minister Starts during the, the election win, doesn't that's it? That's right. And then we go into coronavirus. Yeah. And then it starts to nut down day by day what they're doing in the government while all of these people are becoming infectious in the UK and they're refusing to go into lockdown. And it's very interesting because you think this is fairly recent history that we all lived through. But, of course, when I think back to two years ago when coronavirus started and we were all in lockdown, it it becomes so much about what's going on in your city, your country. Um, And I was vaguely aware of what was going on in the UK um, but this one is really going into a lot more details. And I know that they did some stuff pretty badly. Yeah. Uh, and then this miniseries is really kind of filling in the gaps. And it's interesting because so, so far, like Boris Johnson is almost being portrayed, he's not being portrayed as a monster. No. He's being portrayed as someone that's likable. Um, his staff like him. He seems to, he's not throwing tantrums. He's not throwing things around the room. He's kind of there to get on with it. But it does seem to me that he keeps looking to Dominic Cummings for what he should do and what he should say. And if there's a villain in it, it's very much the Dominic Cummings character, you know, that uh, he's pretty much being portrayed as uh, someone that's not doing the right thing. Yeah, he was sort of kicked out as those things started to turn. I don't know whether Boris blamed him or it was just, um, but he had, I think he was caught too, wasn't he? Didn't he have a car trip? to Scotland or something during a lockdown period and there was 
controversy about I oh, should should he have been allowed to yeah. make this trip? Because Boris was in lots of the garden party, the famous garden party where there was drinking, and did that break the lockdown rules as well? Boris sort of survived all that, but it sort of um, it got him in the end. This is this is a kind of a devastating takedown, really. This miniseries because what they do really well in it is that they keep just focusing on like these random ordinary lives and what's going on as they get sick mm. and the consequences there while Boris is sitting in his country estate writing a book on Shakespeare. And in one scene he says to his girlfriend or his wife, the one that's pregnant, about Karen. to have the baby, yeah, he says to her, oh, you know, or she says to him, you know, Winston Churchill wrote, 40 books and he says oh you're trying to give me a challenge you know I am uh, you know he's so busy writing this book on Shakespeare and you're just like dude did, are you actually paying attention to what's going out there and once this England sort of starts in a nursing home and you start to see them dealing with all these old people you think oh god here we go this isn't here randomly this is going to get really really bad and yeah. indeed it does. Yeah, he loves quoting Shakespeare, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and there's one scene early on, I think in that first episode, they go for a, a weekend at Chequers, which is the British Prime Minister's country retreat, if yep. you like. And he says, she just, Carrie wants to go and just relax and do nothing. And he says, oh, look, I better sit down and start this book. And he says, I've been given a, I think it was £500,000 advance Correct. for a book on Shakespeare and I haven't written a word, yeah. so I better get stuck into that. I've got a feeling this book's never come out anyway. I don't think he's ever written it. Well, the Shakespeare theme is sort of gone through. I've watched several episodes uh -huh. now and uh, there's, he's constantly quoting from Shakespeare and he's also quoting a lot from Winston Churchill. He keeps saying all the time, you know, let's be a bit Churchillian, you know, with how we tell people to deal with coronavirus. I tell you the thing that I woke up this morning thinking about it. I woke up and I was walking the dog thinking about it and it suddenly occurred to me that in this office at Downing Street, uh, as the country's going into lockdown, nobody's wearing a mask. It's almost like they're, it's almost like th that they're in denial of what's going on. And the other thing that, that struck me this morning when I thought about it was they're all male and they're all white. Mm. that this is the world that he's working in, that Dominic Cummins sort of, I want these young, brilliant, I want want to shake up the foundation of everything. But what there is, it's a whole bunch of young white Tories. So it seems very much to me a kind of a think tank mentality is going on here. And they're just kind of, even when they start getting coronavirus, there's still no concern about anybody. Oh, Boris has got it. Oh, whatever. No one goes, gee, do you think I've caught it too? I've been in close proximity to him. It's almost like a form of denial is going yeah. on. That's what I'm getting from it. Well, interestingly, that Rishi Sunak turns up who's a, who's a, that breaks up the white, yeah. thing, if you like. And interesting, Liz Truss's government now, there's been a bit of press about how there isn't a white person in the scene yet. <laughs> in the sort of interior cabinet, yeah. if you like. Um, uh, I don't know whether they're going to be any good as politicians, but it's it's certainly a different-looking cabinet than, than what's been in recent years yes. in, in, in Britain. Um, also interesting for me at the start was that they talk a lot about how he won the election by keeping the message simple. Yeah. And the slogan was, 
get Brexit done. Yeah. Three words yeah. repeated endlessly. And who does that remind you of? Huh? Hey, bring it down to Australia. I was watching and thinking, you know, could we make an Australian miniseries? Because there's certainly a miniseries to be told about how government made these decisions during the coronavirus, you know, and you kind of think those those three-word slogans. I mean, Scott Morrison was famous for that too. It's kind of interesting that you, you had Trump, Morrison and Boris Johnson all kind of using these same methods to get their message across, the slogans, the marketing jargon, all of them kind of doing the same thing. There's a lot of similarities between them. Yeah, absolutely. He, he at one stage is explaining, he might have been talking to Carrie about it, he says, look, that get Brexit done, it's respectable, rhetorical, it's repetition. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah. Just yeah. keep it going. But yeah, no, it's a fascinating, it's a it's a great series. I mean, it looks like I'm one episode in, but I can't wait to um yeah. knock off. I can't things. stop watching it. Now I've started, I just can't stop. Um another true life, this is a doco, I believe, not a drama. Yeah. Sydney. Yeah. Uh, from produced by Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Right. She did a Tony Armstrong did an amazing interview okay. with her on ABC Breakfast uh this week. Um it's interesting for me the Sydney Poitier thing because my mother took me to see in the heat of the night at the drive-in when I was a little boy. Um, she that movie really resonated with her. She kind of used that movie as a teaching tool about racism, and she was uh, that that was one of her favourite movies. And I've never kind of forgotten her taking me to see that. Yeah. Me and my dad and me in the back seat. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I've always remembered my mother talking about that. She was she was always very. Uh, that line in it where Carol O'Connor says something to him and Sidney Poitier says, they call me Mr Tibbs, you know, because he's the black detective in the American South right. who goes down there and Carol O'Connor is the policeman who isn't going to give him any respect. And mm-hmm. there's this moment in the film he says, they, he says, hey, boy, and he says, no, they call me Mr Tibbs. Um, so I've never forgotten that. And, yeah. and Sydney Poitier has always loomed very large in my imagination. And I hadn't, I haven't seen all of his early films, but I'm aware of them to Sue with Love, mm. A Patch of Blue. And, and then in the seventies, he started going into comedies with Bill Cosby, Let's Do It Again, Uptown Saturday Night and all that. But yes. those movies he was making in the fifties and the sixties that kind of tie in with the civil rights movement. Um, and then of course, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, where we look at interracial marriage. These were yeah, really important films, film. you know, that Hollywood was making in the 60s to kind of talk to people about the civil rights movement. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a documentary we can... Um, we can recommend. It's on Apple TV+. Plus, yep. And that's certainly out now. Uh, Netflix is our next destination, Dharma. Yeah. Well, I think its full title is Monster, the Jeffrey Dharma Story. Yeah. Um, this is, look, the thing that got me straight away is that the first thing you get is the sort of censorship warning. Yeah. I think I forget what it was worded now. It was like blood. No, was it warning, um, explicit gore, violence? And I was thinking, oh, dear. Yeah. Um, this is yeah, high violence, 
blood and gore. Hello, it's a Ryan Murphy production, <laughs> and we know from everything that Ryan Murphy uh, makes, he can be restrained when he needs to be, but he can also be really over the top. You know, American Horror Story is a show that has often gone too far for me. I've had mm. to stop watching it. But then when you look at the how he did uh, Versace mm. and how he followed the serial killer there, it was he didn't hold back there. I mean, that was really disturbing. But I watched that series twice. It was so amazing. I ended up watching it twice. And Feud, the Bette Davis yeah. and Joan Crawford, I've watched that yeah. three times. Yeah. When Ryan Murphy gets it right, it's fantastic. But sometimes he goes a bit off. You know, the politician wasn't great. Hollywood, uh, I know what he was trying to do there, but sometimes he goes off the rails. Um, but, look, I'm going to watch this all. It's going to have to get pretty bad for me to turn it off. Um, I'm aware of the Jeffrey Dahmer case, and I'm also a big fan of Evan Peters in the lead role there. Um, he's. I've always thought of him as a kind of a part of that, Ryan Murphy has a stable of actors that he uses, Sarah Paulson, and, uh, you know, I, it's, I think of that, but when you actually look at Evan Peters' work, he's actually been making a lot of great stuff. He isn't just making instalments of American Horror Story. We forget that he was in Mayor of Easttown opposite yeah. Kate Winslet. Yeah. Um, well, I think he probably gets it right here. I mean, a lot of people are going to be put off by the subject matter, I think. Yeah. Um which which made me come close to not wanting to watch. But yeah. I was quite clear that first episode, it starts with how um, Dharma is caught. The the one, I think he was actually 17 victims all up. Yeah. Um, and, gee, this stuff must work for Netflix. <laughs> they make a lot of um, docos about serial killers and dramatisation. They certainly do. I noticed there's a new release this week or something about an Indian serial killer. Right. Like an Indian production. There was um, one in Thailand. Um, yeah, the one we saw. Serpent. Serpent. The Serpent, yeah. yes. You know, and then there's this and there's been plenty of others too. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this so this starts with him being caught. He, you see him, he's living in an apartment. It's in Milwaukee, 1991. Yeah. The... Um, the lady next door who I, Nisi Nash, who I think is the landlady, perhaps. Yep. She's very suspicious. There's, yep. there's a stink, there's a bad stench oh. coming out of his apartment. Oh. You know. And she can hear bloody power drills going yeah. at night too. Yeah, and she's apparently called the cops. Yeah. Many times. <laughs> they come, they don't do anything. Yeah. But this night, um, he go. There's a bar just up the road, a gay bar. He he goes. Well, I guess he frequents. He yeah, goes, he said that's where he, he's getting his victims. Yeah, from. he buys people drinks in the bar. Yeah. And this night he goes in, and the people come. Oh, you've bought me a drink before. Oh, yeah, you have too. And so he's well known in there. Yeah. Um. He, he takes one person back to the to the room, and you think, oh, this is going to go oh. bad. But but the, the guy actually gets out. Yeah. And he alerts the police and they can this is all in the first episode, so yeah. not yeah. really a spoiler for the yeah. season. And um and the police go, hmm, this is looks a bit weird. Anyway, one thing leads to another, and this is the actual this is the um this is the person that they 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 nail him for. For the first charge is attempted murder. Yeah. Because they think that, that this guy's seen running up the street, flags down a cop car. I think, well, this is this is um this is unbelievable, but we'll go and investigate what he's telling us anyway. Um, 
then the second season that flashes back, um, he has a troubled childhood. Right. And you see um, the friction between his parents. And um, now it's his godmother is played by Molly Ringwald. Wow. No, his mother, what did I say? Mother in. Well, there's this. Well, according. Not his godmother, it's his. Stepmother? Stepmother. Yeah. 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 Uh, and someone else plays his mother. I think well, the parents separated yeah. early on. Well, according to the cast list, and I haven't seen her on screen yet, but Michael Learned plays his mother. Correct. Now, she's very famous if you're a fan of the Waltons. She played the mother of all those children, Olivia. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the Waltons. And Penelope Ann Miller yes. plays Joyce Dharma. So there's plenty of Dharma. I'm not sure if that's another that's going to be a sister or another yeah another marriage yeah i'm not sure cuz i've still only watched that those i'm mean, into those first two episodes but it's it's done very well and i and i think it's um it's just quite clever yeah so yeah look i mean he's Ryan Murphy, when he's doing true crime, generally gets it right. When we think of the O.J. Simpson and when he's dealing with true life, he gets it right. It's when he goes off and does American Horror Story and he's making it up that it seems to go off the rails a bit. Yeah. But when he's got the, the the true facts there, he sticks to the facts, he casts well, Sometimes it's a bit stunt casty, but they always seem to pull it off. Yeah. Whoever he gets. And uh yeah, amazing cast and tells disturbing stories well. So that's Dharma, our Netflix 10 episodes. Let's go to a story that's been covered quite a bit. Um, another true story, of course, the the Thai rescue. The, yeah. The young um soccer team that got stuck in caves, I think it was. It's relatively recently, 2018, I think. Yeah. It might have been. A couple of Australians involved in the rescue. Look, there was a, there's been a cinema release in 2019. There was a famous Nat Geo doco. Yes. Uh, a year later, 2020, or it might have been 2021. There was Ron Howard's recent dramatization. I think it got a cinema release, but it's also up on. Um, Is it on Disney Prime? Video. Or Prime, yeah. Prime, I think it's Prime here. Right. Um, so there's been a lot of lot of attempts at telling this story. The yeah. latest one is also on Netflix, six episodes simply titled Thai Rescue. Yeah, and now there's a couple of Aussie actors in it. You've got Roger Corsa Correct. and you've got Damon Harriman in this one. And this one seems to me, uh, from what I've seen of it, there's a, yeah, there's a bit major Thai cast to it and they speak in Thai. Yeah, uh, you hear the actual stories told by some of the boys. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, those Aussie actors get me interested, but, oh, wow, look, I don't know if I can really do it, James. There's something about the, the claustrophobic nature of that story that has made me I, – I, I've never finished watching the Ron Howard one. Mm. I started watching it and then I switched it off and I never went back to it. It's that it, there's something about manoeuvring those kids while they're unconscious through – tight bends underwater that I just don't know that I can sit here and watch it in graphic detail. It really gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. I mean, I I was slightly moved towards it when I read that one of the um, producers from Billions. Yeah, all right, okay. This, so I might give it a look, but look, I've, A, it's so recent, it was reported in such detail at the time. Yeah. I feel like I really know a lot about True. this. But, you know, 
it, it, it could be worth um, getting into. Yeah. Let's go somewhere completely different. Kath and Kim. Yeah. Um, what's happening? Well, this is fascinating. When you think of Kath and Kim, Kath and Kim was uh, commissioned originally by the ABC uh, and that was controversial at the time. Some people in the ABC didn't think that was the right thing for them to be making. becomes a huge success. And after, I think, three series, Channel 7 swooped in, took them to commercial TV, repeated all the original episodes, went into some new episodes, um, and then they finished. They made a movie, Kath and Kim Dorella. They made a couple of kind of... uh, Only one movie? Only one movie. Made some specials, retrospective specials, best bits, all of that. Uh, Then it pops up on Channel 9. You know, in a few years ago, so Channel Nine then repeated. So now this is the it's been on three networks in prime time, still rating, still working. Then it's on Netflix, creates a whole generation of new fans there. You know, so many people have come up to me and said, "Oh my 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 teenage kids, they're just oh they're obsessed by Kath and Kim. They love it. They love it. Comedy travels across generations. I get it. Yeah. All of a sudden, boom, it's back on seven. So seven, now that the football's over, the AFL football's finishing, so on Thursday nights, at least in New South Wales, I presume the rest of Australia, they're going to do marathons of Kath and Kim episodes, going back to the first episode, four episodes a night. Now, I suspect that this is them laying a pathway for this new special that we know they filmed. Um, which, again, I think is going to be a bit, of a, a bit of the best bits. But they've filmed some new stuff with uh, Magda Shabansky, Gina Riley and Jane Turner. And, you know, this is going to be really interesting because when I watch those episodes of Kath and Kim, that what's dated in them is you see their TVs and they've got these big chunky <laughs> TVs and the old computers. But, you know... The the whole Kath and Kim universe happened before social media. Mm. And I think that there's so much potential now to have, of course, we know that Kim is going to be obsessed with social media. She's going to be on Instagram and going on about her followers and all that stuff. And so I I imagine that that's the one thing that I haven't seen those characters do is deal with social media. Yeah. Uh, so I presume there'll be gags about that as they uh, come back with this new footage. Well, let's hope it's more successful than the movie was because that was pretty awful. I liked the movie. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people didn't like it. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've watched it a few times and you have to kind of uh, leave your it's 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 very much a send up of fairy tales. Yeah. So I think it's it's quite to take those characters out of Fountain Lake and Lake and put them in this imaginary European thing. It doesn't work for everybody. But um, yeah, look, I still reckon there's some good moments in that movie. Only ever thirty two episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Three three lots of eight on the ABC. Yep. One of eight on. I can still remember the seven up front. Yeah. When they announced Kath and Kim, it was at NIDA of all places. Wow in the theatre at NIDA down there in, in Kensington in Sydney. Um, it was, yeah, and they were both there. It was amazing. Um, could I ask you this? They also made a US series. Yeah, they There's did. 17 episodes. Amazing. It lasted American that long. Kath and Kim. Yeah. Look at the cast. I know. Molly Shannon yep. was Kath. Yeah. Selma Blair was Kim. Yeah. Huh? 
Uh, but the pro- the but there's the problem right now. Maya Rudolph. There's the problem with it. Selma Blair playing Kim. Now Selma Blair was at that. The thing about Kath and Kim is that Gina Riley and Jane Turner are both kind of similar in age to each other. Yeah. And playing mother daughter, there's there's an immediate, uh, you know disparity there that yeah, you go with. Part of the game. Yeah. But there's also a shamelessness yeah. to Jane Turner and Gina Riley. Jane Gina Riley in particular playing the character of Kim with her muffin top, <laughs> muffin top, always wearing clothes that are too small for her, letting her stomach and her gut poke out and refusing to admit that she's not dressing uh right for her age or her figure. That's what was missing visually from the American show. Selma Blair was a skinny, young actress playing the daughter. So straight away, you've got that disconnect. The American version of Catherine Kim was never going to work because those act- it was miscast and those actresses weren't shameless the way that the Aussies were. I still want to watch it. Yeah, well, I remember watching it at the time and wanting it to work because... I wonder if it's on anywhere. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. I think they it? released it on DVD. Jennifer Coolidge is in it. I know. It's it's the most in, incredible cast. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, but they messed it up so bad. Right. But listen, I, I, I would say that of, of in the history of Australian sitcoms, no Australian sitcom has been repeated more in prime time on Australian yeah. TV than Kath and Kim. Yeah, it absolutely. just keeps going and going and going. Absolutely. Two things to finish up on. I've got one, but I think you're going to tell us a little bit about Sweet and Sour. Oh, yeah. So I've been listening to this podcast. I'll look it up on my phone as we do it. I discovered it by accident. The show, youth, sort of a youth show back in. Yeah. Uh, the 1980s. 1980s. Yep. Commissioned for the ABC. Yep. So the podcast is called A Journey Through Aussie Pop. And they go back and they talk to people like Joe Beth Taylor and uh, Andy Van from Madison Avenue and all of that. So it's all about pop music. But they do a two-part episode on Sweet and Sour, which was a show made for kids by the ABC in the 80s. They used to screen it at 6pm at night. That was back in the days when you had a countdown tie-in. It starred David Rain and Tracy Mann, Rick Herbert, and all of these incredible Aussie musicians of the day like Moving Pictures and Renee Geyer were doing cameos in the show. And I remember watching the time, think it was fantastic. I bought the record. They had, I think they released two LP soundtracks, but it's never been released on video or DVD. It's not streaming. And it's because there's some issue about the music copyright or something like that. Okay. But it's on YouTube, James all 20 episodes, <laughs> and I'm trying to knock them off in case one day someone decides to take them down for that same reason. And you know what holds up really, really well? Um, and it's something that I watched back in the 80s. The music is really familiar to me, but I'm going to try and watch every episode again on YouTube because the fact that it's not streaming or being released on DVD, it's a bit forgotten. But I tell you what, it's probably the... To to make a show about an Aussie band back then in the 80s, I mean, you could have gotten that so wrong. Yeah. But they got it so right because it was written by uh, musicians 
uh, who had had been through that experience themselves, and they got it right. Yeah. And I think it's an Aussie classic. And if the only place we can watch it on YouTube, get into it now. Sweet and sour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joanna Piggott was one of the creators. She I think. was. Yeah. Now, was she in? I'm thinking XL Capri. She was in a band. Yes, she, she was. XL Capri's with yeah. Todd Hunter. Correct. I think. Yes. I think it was XL Capri's. I'm not sure. So yeah. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but she was. She did write. She was a music writer. She the the creators also worked on Heartbreak High. Wow. The original Heartbreak High, I think. Yeah. And one of the directors of I think of a handful of episodes was Posey Graham Evans. Wow. Who of course later went on to uh, McLeod's Daughters was a well-known novelist, head of drama at nine for a while, so very diverse career she had. And there was also they hired real musicians to sort out the soundtrack, and they had they had so much music that uh, the band Ganga Jane was created okay. during this process. They were writing songs for Sweet and Sour, and then went, oh, no, actually, that would be really good, and they kind of broke away and created Ganga Janes because there was just so much opportunity for musicians back then, you know? yeah. yeah. Fantastic. But it's all filmed on the streets of Darlinghurst. And the reason I want to watch it again is because it's a show that's that maybe has a side of Sydney that doesn't exist anymore. And the fact that it was filmed for real and the fashions of the 80s and all yeah. of that, I want to see Darlinghurst back in the 80s. That's what I'm looking forward to seeing again. Sure. Look, I'll leave us today with um, we've talked a lot about the offer on this podcast, the the dramatisation of the making of The Godfather. Yep. Um, on Paramount Plus. Yes. Now, on the way up here today on the drive, I listened to a Mark Maron does a lot of good podcasts, but he, he does. does way too many for him to listen to them all. But I saw this one. I thought I wanted to listen to this. He speaks to Al Ruddy, who was the producer of The Godfather and the central character yeah. in um, The Offer, played by Miles Teller. Correct. In that. Anyway, he sits down. Look, it's about 90 minutes. It's, you've got to have a bit of time. Yeah. But it's worth a listen. My only objection is Mark Maron just sits back and lets him talk too much. Right. I had a lot of questions I wanted thrown up. So um, that's the only negative. But he, he tells some great stories. Wow. About about the show, about Brando. Yeah. You know, he said at the time Brando couldn't get arrested. So the studio didn't want Brando involved and he tells that story, how that came about. And it was fascinating. But one of the stories he does tell, and it's a very long part of the interview, he may remember the movie Matilda, the boxing kangaroo, Elliot yes. Gould. Yeah. He made that movie. How a big, a big turkey. Yeah. And he says, he tells you, but it's a fascinating story about um, making that film. And what I didn't know, he, I mean, he produced the, he got an Oscar for The Godfather. He also got an Oscar for... Clint Eastwood direct a movie about boxing, American Baby. Me, million it? Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby. Right. He was the producer on that. Wow. Because oh. it's quite astounding that he didn't, that he refused to do The Godfather Part Two. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. the offer you see him having to say to Francis Ford Coppola, I don't want to do it. I yeah. want to do something different. Yeah. Well, he made, he made The Longest Yard with uh, Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. Yeah, which they and remade he, with Adam Sandler. Yeah, and he yeah. talks about how he got Burt Reynolds interested in this. And um, Yeah. 
you know. So, it, yeah, look, it's a fascinating thing. And, um, yeah, Ruddy himself, I didn't know a lot about Ruddy apart from his work on The Godfather. Yeah. And, and all the other movies he was involved in. Interesting. So, Miles Teller is having a really good year, by the way. Not only does he star in The Offer, which is going to be on our list of the best shows of the year, but yeah. he's, he's the star of Top Gun to Maverick opposite Tom Cruise. So he's having an incredible year Yeah, because that film, I reckon that might end up being the highest grossing movie of the year, right? Oh, I'm sure. It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I only saw it recently too and it didn't do much for me, I must say. I mean, it's it's a bit of escapism, but the plot is just... Well, it's basically it's Top Gun 1 remade. Yeah, was, I thought it was very reverential to the first film. Yeah, I the like whole love interest. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. just nonsense. I find, yeah, the love interest is just so, it's it's so unnecessary. Yeah. And it's there because you can't have a, a film about all these men in the military without saying to them they're not gay. They, they oh, well, you know. And it, who's the enemy in Top Gun? Uh, Maverick? They just, never say. It's weird. They never it? say. Not good yeah. Yeah. But look, um, look, that's the Media Week podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, James. Great, great to um, have you on board again this episode. Look, we do these weekly now. You can find these podcasts on your favourite podcast platform, including the listener app, including uh, Spotify. It's on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts. So grab any of those apps and you can listen to us and you can read Andrew every Friday at mediaweek.com.au and in the Media Week daily email, the Media Week Morning Report. See you again soon, Andrew. See you, James.